So thank you very much for staying very late on a beautiful, rarely beautiful Saturday uh, day in London. Um, really appreciate it. And before I start, I just had some random thoughts. I really enjoyed this whole last minute talk about uh, word presentations and think presentations while also realizing that most of the speakers had a tag with their name uh, then and I was had this constant association as well my name is too big to fit in one of these tags and then I remembered that in the morning Mark's tag felt and while I was sitting there chairing David there was a symbol said Mark Holmes all crumbled on the on the floor um the other thing to say sorry for the random associations both our male speakers almost fell this morning and they didn't realize and I was getting really anxious that they're both about to to fall so I tend to move a lot as you will see so please stop me if I'm about to injure myself um okay so um, because this is the uh, celebration of Freud's, and I don't know where I'm going to sit, I'm going to find it as I go along so again if you can't see just uh, raise your hand um I, because we are uh, celebrating Freud's classic and beautiful paper on the unconscious, I thought I'd start with big ideas. So um, this comes from Attica, my hometown, where um, they depicted very early on in antiquity, and of course it wasn't just um, Athens, and it wasn't of course just the Greek antiquity, but all of antiquity had this old uh, battle between reason and chaos, between our animal nature and our more rational self. And we've heard various incarnations and debates about it today. And in the 19th and 20th century, carries on, you all know about the big theories that, that shake it. Just, just some quotes to remind us that it's not all Freudian, um, even though, of course, Freud has a very special place in working it systematically. So um, this is Nietzsche. Um, he he uh, kept this um, word, the it, as well as um, he used the word the unconscious, uh, for whatever is our nature is impersonal and, so to speak, subject to natural law. And this one is for Grotek. I don't know how to say that name. I hold the view that man is animated by the unknown, that there is within him an S, an it, so wondrous force which directs both what he himself does and what happens to him. The affirmation I live is only conditionally correct. It expresses only a small and superficial part of the fundamental principle. Man is lived by it. As you know, Godic corresponded with Freud. And so Freud um, takes upon himself this uh, task of, if you like, psychologizing this uh, beast, this monstrous part, the it. Um, and I want, unlike our previous colleague, to talk a lot about the paper um, and the metapsychology of it, uh, but I will keep alluding to it um, throughout my talk, hoping that you know what I'm talking about. And again, at the end, maybe we can discuss any ambiguities. And um, as I alluded before to Mark's talk, and our previous speakers have covered it sufficiently, he does seem, to me at least, put a great emphasis later on in the fact that the it, the unconsciousness um, in man exists, but in the detail, and the devil is frequently in the detail, the, this animal nature is not necessarily to be equated with any system that can be localized and called the unconscious. It's a property, it's a process, it's a function of mind and brain rather than a place, a locus, a system. And... Um, out of it, I think most of Freud's uh, well-now uh, 
uh, greatest in science, STEM, and I'm only listing them here because I'm going to use them later, not because I assume you don't know them. So, as we said, the existence of unconscious mental processes, and without the idea that the mind has distinct parts that each have their own operational principles and goals, and that there is a fundamental conflict at the nature of man, and this conflict stems from both the fact that there are these different parts as well as from our drives. And so the question I think this conference is asking, in terms of the unconscious, what is Freud's legacy today? And I am, as Mark said, uh, first, by first training, I'm a neuropsychologist, and so I sort of represent this side of the debate today. And I just wanted to, to say that a lot of people out there, the mainstream, are actually saying that Freud is dangerous, and these days... 2015, they don't even bother say that. It just doesn't matter. They don't say much about it. They don't care. Um, these passionate critics are also disappearing. A lot of the people, my uh, contemporaries, don't seem to know enough about Freud to be a passionate against him. Um, but there have been voices like this, and they're painful to people like me. No empirical evidence support any specific proposition of psychoanalytic theory. While Freud had an enormous impact on 20th century culture, he has been a dead weight on 20th century psychology. Psychologists could get along without him. Um, there have been isolated voices uh, within the neurosciences doing supporting empirical work specifically on the unconscious, as well as um, a lot of uh, summaries and reviews and opinions saying that actually, of course, there is an unconscious and particularly a dynamic unconscious. And interestingly, what I think is happening particularly more recently is a good development as far as I'm concerned. And I'm going to call this the supporting critics. So because they are people from the mainstream, they grow out, out of this mainstream education that tells them that Freud is dead, they nevertheless into science, into their own fields, are hitting upon the dynamic unconscious. And they're providing the field with very interesting data about the dynamic unconscious. They prove repression, dynamic unconscious, etc. And by the way, none of this, I'm actually including uh, myself, Mark, and what I call us. I'm including the mainstream out there, people that really don't relate to psychoanalysis in any way. So um, there's a lot out there if you're interested in this field, and I'll try to just give you one snippet um, of it. Uh, and I'm calling them the supporting critics because what they do is after they've proven that, for example, unconscious thought can actually influence conscious thought in a dynamic way, they are very quick to say, but it's not to be understood in the Freudian sense, in the sense that Freud also said A, B, C, D, which we happen to know doesn't apply. And the other researcher working three labs away is proving one of these ABCs, but is very quick to say that Freud was wrong because there's the other things, including the thing that the other person just proved, that we can't accept. So I think this is the consequence of this, um, if you like, epistemological way of approaching the issue. So typically, what all these people have done, irrespective of whether their motivation has been to prove Freud wrong or right, is they list a number of properties of the unconscious in Freudian um, thought, then they list a number of properties in what neuroscientists call the new unconscious, and there's a big debate, and it's actually called as such whether the new unconscious is dumb or smart, and they um, list the properties, and what they're looking for is to see if there's absolute correspondence because between what each of them considers to be the critical properties. And anybody who's read Freud know that 
It takes at least two years of studying Freud just to know what he meant. And even that is the beginning of you realizing what he could have meant, what he didn't mean, what other people thought he meant, right? Um, so I'm not saying there isn't essence to Freud, nor that we should be totally relativistic or anything. But what I'm saying is if you take that ta- taxonomy, terminological-based, ta- taxonomical-based sort of descriptive way of looking of what the unconscious is, you don't seem to get anywhere. You will always find things that fit or don't fit your um, perceptions. So what else can we do? Well, I think an alternative approach will be to think big, i.e., and that applies to all concepts, not just unconsciousness. If you take any concept out of a whole, that concept uh, eventually, whether you prove it or not, needs to be fitted back in a whole. But that's not an easy task. That kind of inference and relationship is a very uh, difficult task to do if you do it like this. If you, Because in order to test it, you're doing another kind of inference. You need to put it in another context. And then you need to make sure that everything you changed was actually identical to the first context. Well, it's never going to work because otherwise why would you need to change it in the first place? So um, another way to do it is to look not really what unconscious is in its essence in Freud, but look at what unconscious is in the context of Freud, in a model of Freud, i.e. take the baggage with you, take the theory with it, take the, re- the, the position of unconsciousness in Freudian theory. And in equal measure, do the same in neuroscience. Look what is the role of the presum- presumed and tested unconsciousness in these other fields, in the models. And then um, one way of looking at it is you can then find a phenomenon that you think relates to what unconsciousness is all about and look at it from both standpoints. So this is what I'm going to do. And as I said, I'm going to assume here that we know a little bit about Freudian theory because we can't, you know, certainly not in the next 40 minutes that I have left, cover the whole of the psychoanalytic model. But we do, and I will try, to cover a little bit of what neuroscience thinks is about the mind and brain. And you're not going to get what I'm talking about, so I apologize for this. But even if you get an impressionistic view in the given time that I have, I'll be really happy because that is really the point I'm trying to to uh, push here. So I'm going to use this model. It's not the only model in neuroscience, but it's certainly my preferred model and many other people's. And this is called the free energy principle. For those of you that know Freud, that is of some relevance. So the main idea behind this model of the brain in neuroscience is that humans, as biological agents, must ensure that they occupy a limited number of states, i.e. they follow homeostasis. In other terms, if we are in very cold climates, particularly if we're Greek, we will die. We need to make sure we stay within normal um, and uh, um, evolutionary prescribed temperatures. However, we can't quite predict without the BBC the weather out there. So the world is ambiguous, it's unpredictable, and we can't perceive it with certainty. It has black holes and hidden elements. It's very, very complex, as David was trying to say, like the economic world. So there is the risk of surprise. And surprise here is a formal term. It actually means what I said before, that we will be outside homeostasis. So we need to reduce that as humans, as brains, these scientists are trying to tell us. So what we do, well, scientists themselves went back to von Helmswald, pretty much where Freud started, and they said, well, maybe what we try to do is we predict sensory states, we predict what weather is going to hit our body by unconsciously inferring the possible weathers that might hit our body based on our prior knowledge, based on Greece is warmer than England and I know that because I lived 20 years there and 15 years here kind of thing. Um, And so what they see the brain as 
predominantly, fundamentally doing is not perceiving the world, as previous neuroscientists tell us, but as actually engaging in probabilistic representations of what the world is out there. To put it another way, we're all BBC weather predictors. Okay, that's it is. The mind is the BBC. That's the sort of idea. So the mind doesn't actually perceive that the main goal of the mind isn't to perceive the weather. It is to form a model of what the weather might be. And according to that, lead my life. That is the predominant idea of that um, model. And that's how it works. It works by the idea that, in fact, nothing that hits our body is directly perceived. Instead, everything is filter but my expectations. But of course, that's important. It gives us stability, right? Because we're not overwhelmed by everything, because we remember the good weathers from the bad weathers. We do a lot of predictive work before we get there, so that we're not cold and all that. Um, but we also need to learn, because sometimes there is, as we said, real surprise in the world, in the everyday sense, i.e. Uh, sometimes there's bad weather even in Greece. So in order to learn that, you... Um, need to use errors, predictive errors, to inform, make these models better, become a better predictor. And that allows the organism to adapt, not just to be stubborn and a self, but to be an adaptable, a, a self that has learned. And in this schema, some of you that are interested maybe in philosophy or this kind of thinking, that idea is very close to atoboesis, is very much close to the idea, um, also in various other fields, in mechanics, etc., that the self is self-organizing. There is no other agency leading it. It's doing it all within the organism. And so in... Um, over time, the goal then of the, of the organism, the brain particularly, is to reduce the probability of being surprised. And to do that, you need to constantly be making better models. Makes sense. And the trick is that neuroscientists increasingly don't speak everyday language. They speak mathematical language. So they use a particular mathematical theory in this model called Bayesian theory to try to formalize this kind of unconscious inference that the brain is supposed to be making all the time and another are computational terms, including free energy. So this refers to variational free energy, which is not exactly the free energy that Freud had in mind, the thermodynamic free energy, but the information theory, i.e. mathematical computational um free energy, but they are related. They're not totally independent. Sorry, I'm throwing a lot of random information at you because I look at you and I know you have different interests. So as I said before, it doesn't, that doesn't everything matter so long as we follow the same gist together and come to see the relation between these things. So it looks like that. But what they're essentially saying is, um, you experience, sorry, I'm trying to, yeah, you experience sensations, you have mental models, and that's very important for us. Hardcore neuroscientists are saying the brain is there to build mental unconscious models. And then you act when you need to change things in the environment in order to um, get different sensations, which you filter based on your expectations. Then if you need to something you, to change, you act, you get other sensory experiences, and so on and so forth. And it sounds all very mathematical, complex and all that. But in psychology and generally in, in, in um, visions of the mind, we are actually not new to these ideas. There's not a lot of these ideas are all there. What's original is how they put them together. So the idea that the mind is able to project ourselves and our subjectivity in the future is something we think about all the day. We call it imagination. You can all program and think what you possibly be doing tomorrow or what you want to do to somebody you like or don't like. 
Um, and at the same time, of course, we've spent decades studying how we can mental travel back, right? We travel back mentally. We, in our minds, take our body as it were. We are not just thinking about the past. We are re-experiencing the past in the mind, okay? So what is pushed as an idea in this model is not any of that, but is the idea that the body, and think of the kind of bodies that Mark told us about this morning, the body is actually, like our imagination and our memory, virtual. What I mean is, the body that sits in a chair right now and experiences me is not actually the body you think sits in that chair there and experiences me. You do not have a direct access to um, your body. And I don't know, in fact, if I agree or disagree with Mark on that, maybe he knows. But even this very um, emotional, rudimentary sense um, that we experience our body is an inference for these models. So this is hard to accept intuitively. We all believe that we have a direct idea of how we feel inside us, that that is the basis of everything, in fact. Um, and when something is very hard to intuitively understand, it causes doubts and then sometimes theories get stuck. But there are certain disorders in neurology, and this thing actually exists in many other contexts, but today I'm going to talk about neurology, that really make it easy for us to um, come closer to these counterintuitive ideas. And these are disorders of body awareness, as it's called. The one I'm mainly going to be talking about is anosognosia for hemiplegia. This is a very long Greek thing that says that you do not have knowledge into your own disease. And the disease here is the paralysis of the body at the side opposite to the side of your stroke. So in their majority, these are right hemisphere um, stroke patients, so they have damage to the right side of the brain, and they have uh, paralysis to the left side of the body. Yeah. Uh, in order for us to call them anosognosic, certainly in my lab and certain other places in the world, they have to have complete paralysis. So there isn't you know, just a little bit of weakness. I'm talking about people for one day to another are completely paralyzed. It's a big thing in one's life. And they are completely unaware of it. They behave and talk and think as though they can get out of bed and walk. And they shout at us for not allowing them to do that. And some of them do try and fall and injure themselves. And seconds later, they insist that they're not paralyzed. Yeah, This is the kind of presentation we have in mind. Some of them have further delusions about the ownership of the body. So not only they deny that the left side is paralyzed, but they might believe that it belongs to somebody else or that it's just not there or that they just don't recognize it. They don't know if it belongs to somebody else, but it's not there. Yeah, So these are sort of delusions of motor awareness. I don't know if I'm moving or not. And these are delusions of body ownership. I don't know if the body is mine, it belongs to me, it's there, it's not there. And so if we follow what I said before, one way that we can understand these disorders, and that's what I've been trying to argue for a long time, is I understand it as a conflict between this um, expectations these patients have, similarly to the prior life, that they're still able to move. In contrary to this mind-blowing, obvious for everybody else experience that they, in fact, cannot move. And so the question of their study becomes, why can they not update? Why cannot they learn, as we said before? Uh, why don't they update their expectations, their predictions about their body? And there have been, over the past hundred years at least, actually the 
celebration of this disorder was the 100 years since the discovery of this disorder was last year. So it is uh, 100 years since uh, people have noted this disorder. And um, almost since then, there have been both psychodynamic and neurological explanations. From a psychodynamic point of view, it makes sense to say that people, particularly at early stages, might be unwilling, unable to let go of a sense of self that is able for all the known psychodynamic reasons for with all the known psychodynamic mechanisms of defense repression denial etc this view has been criticized and largely rejected by science uh, there is no good evidence supporting it according to the mainstream of science and instead there is clear evidence that these patients have specific deficits as i said to the right hemisphere predominantly in specific areas of the brain and therefore the idea there in science is that there should be therefore somewhere in these parts of the brain, the locus of consciousness. And therefore, when these brains are damaged, these patients lose consciousness. And that's what we need to look at. It has nothing to do with emotions, defenses, etc., etc. And, as you probably gathered, these ideas are opposing. So let's look at them in detail. And remember, the goal here is to understand something about Freudian unconsciousness. So I'll get to it, I promise. Okay. What, how did it start? Well, initially in the first um, decades, continuing almost into the 90s, people said, but wait a minute, when you have damage to the right part of your brain, you also have kind of like basic um, damage to some parts of the brain, like the ones that Marx explained, that monitor your state. So, for example, you might not be able to perceive tactile stimulation. You can't feel touch very well in that part of the body. So you're not receiving feedback. You're not receiving the normal kind of feedback from the body that might help you to see if you're moving or not. Yeah, so that was the initial explanation. I, if somebody's interesting, I'll explain all the rest later, but that's the gist of it. The gist of it is you're not getting the right feedback. Why would you update? Why would you learn if you don't have information about your own body? Oh, sorry. Um, however, what we do in neuropsychology is you, you sometimes find patients that might have this problem. They don't have any feedback from this side of the body, but they do not have the symptom and vice versa. Somebody might not have the symptom, but have all these problems for the body. That allows us to conclude that these problems, are, to say the least, they're not sufficient to cause it. It can't be, that because otherwise everybody who had this will have the other, right? And vice versa. But it doesn't work like this. And also people have done these large studies with many patients, and they found even if you combine some of these things between them, even the, the um, summation of all these things doesn't lead to these more higher-order consciousness problems. And there along came the theories like the theory I explained in the beginning. So I need to stress one element here, which I didn't stress before, simply for the reasons of uh, simplicity. So as you can see, what this theory predicts here is what we said before. This is the circle of prediction, expectation, etc. But there's the other circle as well, that of action. So the idea there is that when you predict something from the environment, here, the sensation, let's say, from the eyes or from the feet, that leads to a prediction error in the mind. That's unconscious. It's not consciousness. And there's two ways of dealing with that. One is you can change your perception. You can learn. And the other one is you can um, act. Yeah. So according to that, perception and action are almost the same thing. Again, these models are so exciting because they're going against everything that classic cognitive psychology have ever told us. So perception and action are in two things. You don't first perceive something in order to act. Perception, as it were, is already in the action. Or in other words, action is nothing but having predicted, BBC way, 
the consequences of your action. This is what this model is saying. So actually me trying, the, what the brain does when I want to place this on the table, it says this is how you will feel if you place it on the table. And that's what informs my consciousness. This inference informs my consciousness. That's what the model says. So if that's true, what some people say, oh, now actually before we go there, what I'm going to do is hold that thought if that's true. I'm going to tell you about anosognosia, but first I want to demonstrate it. I want to show you how you're all unaware of your body and how easily we can do that in the lab. So um, this is an experiment done by Mark Schoenero and his colleagues some years ago. So all you do is sit in front of the table. This is a graphic table. You can't see anything below the line, and that critical thing here is your hand. So your hand is under a table, simple as that. And your task, you're asked to draw a simple line. You're given a um, starting point and a tug target. You need to do that. Simple, right? Uh, and they record that with cameras, which they project here. So you don't actually see your own arm, but you see on an electronic table the line, the feedback, the line being drawn, okay? And what the um, experimenters, or actually the computer does, without telling you is, after a while, as you are seeing the feedback of your own moment from this starting point to here, they introduce a little diversion. So the line you see is moving this way. What are you going to do in order to reach the target? Any clues? That's it. Everybody's doing it. I love how you do it with your hand. You see, it's the brain. The brain answered the question. So you are, you are moving to the other side. You're compensating for the wrong kind of feedback. Indeed, that's exactly, um, what happens. Uh, subjects go like this. The feedback is, is tilted by computer like this. So what happened is, how did all these normal participants, nothing wrong with the brain, they were fine, of course. They hit the target. They were able to do that. It was a very easy task. You all got it immediately. What was interesting is they asked them what they thought they did. They had no clue that they had corrected the movement. And they asked them again and again. And for the skeptics, because that's what scientists are, they even did them to do it. You know, again, to repeat the actions. They drew lines. They did all sorts of things. Whichever way you ask it, they've done it with circles. They've done it with all sorts of ways. If... There is relatively small errors in the kind of feedback we get about the behavior. We just ignore it. We rely on vision. Or, more generally, we rely on something, one of the sources, that is very close to the one we have predicted that things will end up, rather than to what our system, our motor system, our body actually did. Yeah. In other very simple terms, which we said from the very beginning, we take what the BBC says the weather is going to be as actually having perceived the weather. Yeah? Okay. So as long as our actions are leading to the target, things change. If you fall down, make a mistake, then you need to use other, other systems. But we're talking about if you manage to do something and the deviation is small, then you, in a way, your awareness is all about what you intended to do, not what actually happened. Okay. So then I can return to this disorder and ask you, so, why is it that these patients are ignoring something so big like a complete paralysis and falling down and the errors and what their husband says and what the wife says, etc.? And according to some of these uh, cognitive neuroscientists, it might be because the particular damage in the brain has something to do with these secondary mechanisms that allow us to compare between what we intended to do and what actually happened. Because I did say, remember, we have this unconscious inference, we have predictions, but there are mechanisms if we need to learn that we can learn. Otherwise, we'll always be living in this kind of hallucinatory mode. We'll always be um, 
totally predicting without any real embodiment, without any real relationship to the reality world. And this is what the scientists tried to do then. This is quite recently. It's uh, 2005, the first study looking at this. They had um, data of this kind showing that indeed the areas that do the motor predicting are intact to these areas, but the, the areas that can do error monitoring, are, as it were, were, were damaged. And then they had these very clever tasks, which I really like. These are called bimanual tasks. You might remember these from childhood. I don't know how I'm going to do this with a microphone, but we're going to give it a try. So if you want to draw a line with one hand and a circle with the other, if you try to do it simultaneously, what happens is, yeah, a lot of people are trying, yes. What happens? It's hard to do, but you eventually get there. And what happens to the arm that does the line, it starts to become a bit oval, right? Why? Because there's intermanual interference. One brain, two sides, but still needs to coordinate them. So one th one thing influences the others, and you have um, the lines of healthy people like you, yeah, behaving like this. Now, this is the very clever thing that the researchers did. They said, okay, these patients cannot move, right? So we can't possibly do any bimanual tasks with them. But they don't know that they can't move the left hand. So if we ask them to move, they're going to behave normally and start planning a movement. So that would be a great way for us to see if this planning, in fact, takes place. And in here, below, look at it. This is the anosognosic patient. This is a patient who cannot move the left arm, and yet his right arm is becoming oval. Yeah. So this is one of these classic experimental, beautiful ways. Sorry, this is why I'm a geek. But the experimental ways where we can study this kind of unconscious stuff, right? And I find that very exciting. I, I know it's not the dynamic unconscious. I'll get there. But it's still bloody exciting. When sometimes people say, oh, it's just the descriptive. I say, it is the descriptive. It's still very exciting. Okay? So this is what we do. Little gimmicks. It works. So what these um, scientists are proving that the mind in these patients is indeed able to do this kind of predicting work, yeah, the planning work. And that has effect on behavior in another domain. Okay, so this is what we tried to do in 2008. We said, this is all good. It's very good. But the package, the theory says that this bit, the planning, informs awareness. Has anybody actually tested this? The content of awareness, what these people say and feel. So to test it, we did something that we thought was very simple, but remarkably, a lot of simple things never thinks, uh, people don't think about it, and you always think they're remarkably simple in hindsight. Anyway, um, what we did is we got a rubber hand. This is a plastic rubber hand. They're used quite a lot in science. It's quite realistic. I should have brought one with me. You get um, a student to hold it under the pillow, and the first finding is when you show that to right hemisphere patients with the symptoms and without healthy, uh, not healthy, brain damaged, but controls, i.e. people that know that they are paralyzed. The first thing that does, which I won't have a lot of time to, to talk about, the th first thing that happens is that they acquire ownership of this. So there's this is a phenomenon called visual capture in neuroscience. So as soon as you see a rubber hand, you start believing it's yours. And that is, for us, was just the beginning. This was just the basis to take advantage of this phenomenon to study motor awareness. So what we did there is said, okay, after a sound, I want you to try to move this rubber hand, which they think is this. So move your left arm. Um, in other um, conditions, don't move it. We will move it for you. We're holding it, and we will move it. And in other conditions, please don't move and we will not move. And then what we did is in front of the patient in a way that we made absolutely sure that they can see, we either moved the rubber hand in some of these conditions or not. So the dark blue here 
is the instant that most mirrors the clinical phenomena. This is what happens in everyday life. They are trying to move. They don't move, but they think they move. Okay? That's the phenomenon. These conditions, nobody tested. These are conditions when the movement is passive, i.e. they haven't planned it. They haven't predicted. Somebody else is going to do it for them. When you do that, there's loads of evidence that the brain sits there. You know, somebody else is doing the work. So if there's a difference between these conditions and these, um, then that means this planning is actually what gets confused for awareness. Only when you plan to moon, you then think that you moved. And as frequently happens in science, we found exactly what we thought in a group of patients. Um, there's some stats and stuff, but don't worry. The point here is that here, selectively here, all these patients, but not controls, believe that the arm they clearly see to be still has moved, whereas in the other two conditions, same arm, same position, they could easily see it. No, it didn't move. And it's lovely how patients get upset with you as well because you're asking them the same thing again and again. But in these conditions, um, they clearly insisted. So that was good proof that not only this planning is happening in the brain, but it's influenced the awareness. So what we predict is unconsciously is what we end up feeling consciously that we did. Okay. So more errors in active than passive movement. Predicted state overrides actual state. Back to the model. That makes total sense for all the reasons I've explained before. Mathematical formulations, etc. So um, scientists would call this a forward model. That means a predictive model. Um, and it's sensory motor. So this disorder can be fully explained on the basis of the interaction between motor planning and sensory feedback. And it also implies that our awareness is non-veridical. That's the term they use for what I called before virtual. That what you're sitting there, when you act, or when you perceive your body are not necessarily what corresponds to how other people see things. Um, and we also understand this as an inference at an unconscious level. So this disorder, therefore, can be defined as a neurological exaggeration of what's normally unconscious and imperfect and only becomes veridically conscious when it needs to become, not always. Most of the time, it's unconscious. And so, of course, the question I'm going to finally ask, is that it? Is it done? Is this all there is to the it in Freudian uh, conceptualization in contemporary neuroscience? And so another interesting clinical phenomenon with these patients that, of course, psychodynamic clinicians have noted for years now is that sometimes they give clinicians the impression that they know. And as I'm sure most of you can appreciate, that's a nightmare in the hospital. The amount of times that I have argued with nurses, etc., because they say, oh, she's being difficult because the patient has some bizarre behaviors which they interpret and it's very interesting for, for freud as being unconsciously aware um, is is causing them trouble but let's see what i mean so this is a patient we've been seeing I, I tend to spend quite a lot of time with them and i tend to go also to some of their sessions for example with a physiotherapist and she's had visitors she had the medic as it happens in the uk you have the whole cohort of medical uh, students coming to see you so and she's in physio she's a very nice lady highly educated very charismatic um, chats away while being totally anosognosic during her assessments and as uh, students are a bit like that but behaving politely and then at the end the physio said uh, well you know you've you've demonstrated all this for them now it's time for you to ask questions do you want to ask the students anything 
And she asks them what they want to do, and then they give her in the careers, she give very nice questions and answers, and there's a very nice bonding suddenly, you know, because the patient was being demonstrated, and now the patient is interacting. And in that interaction, there's a, there's a kind of rapport being built between the medical students and these patients. And then, almost at a clinical door moment, as the medical students are at the door to leave, the session is over, she shouts at them, which is generally a rather indifferent patient, shouts at them and says, well, maybe it'd be great if you come back and see me at a time that I'll be really ill, and then I'll have something to tell you. Now, just why would somebody who's really unaware say that at a time that I'll be really ill? Yeah, That's an indication of some something is um, happening. And then Mark and various other colleagues have described how these patients are generally seen as emotionally indifferent, but sometimes the very little thing about where you place their cup or something can really throw them emotionally. They must absolutely have it there, and you absolutely hate me, and everybody is against me, etc., etc. So a proper catastrophic reaction, as it's called, for something that seems trivial, but seems to be emotionally out of context in a way. And then... Um, there are also um, dissociations observed both clinically and behaviorally that sometimes these patients behave as though they're ill but talk as though they're not and vice versa. And also in neuropsychology, I should say, this has been tested a hundred times in other things, like there's a thing called blindsight where people are blind in one part of um, visual field because of something in, in their brain, but in that visual field that they are blind, they can actually perceive things without knowing that they perceive them including emotional things. And this has been um, shown many times, but it hasn't been shown in anosognosia. So this is another gimmick, another Mickey Mouse way to, to study um, the unconscious, but this time it's the emotional unconscious we are after. So what you do is you take this, this is a classic neuropsychological test, it's standardized, it's validated, it's developed by other people to try to test inhibition of automatic response, as it's called. So there's many ways to do that. The most classic is the Stroop, but with these patients, verbal tasks are better because they have all sorts of other problems of visuospatial perception. So um, you give them a sentence that's missing the last word. In this case, um, the job was easy most of the time. But in the critical condition, their job is not to find that word, but to find a word that's un completely unrelated to the sentence. And you think that's easy. But it's not. Once you have to do it under time, all of you will make some errors. If you had damage to your frontal lobe, you will make even more errors. Because reading is an automated ability we all have acquired, and we're really fast at it, and it's very hard to inhibit the thing that you've learned to do automatically. So it's a test of inhibition. But what we did in these patients is we adjusted meaning, if you like. So we adjusted the meaning of the sentences. And some of these sentences were what we call controls, so they were all about driving and parking and all that. So spectacles are used for car drivers who cannot. The right answer will be C, but actually the right answer would be something like banana. Okay? Then there were the disability-related sentences. Wheelchairs are used for hospital patients who cannot walk. And then there were questions that were controlling for emotion, negative emotion, but one that was not disability-related because we wanted to see how specific the effect is. So sentences would be something like, tranquilizers are used for violent victims who cannot. Yeah? So they, as you can see, they're very carefully done. It took us months to construct these sentences. And the point is they're going to do the same inhibition task with sentences, only one of which category really relates to them. And this is what we're finding. After the task, you ask both these kind of patients and very suited controls 
for explicit ratings. That's how you feel about these sentences. How much do they relate to you? And the first thing to observe is, as we expected, because these patients are anosognosic, unaware, if you ask them how much do these paralysis-related sentences relate to you, they score lower than what the controls that know that they're in fact paralyzed. But then if you go to these measures, which is them doing this inhibition task and you measuring what we call implicit measures, i.e. how long they take, how many errors they make. Yeah, they don't actually have to tell you things. You're looking from a, a window in, as it were. Then we see the opposite. We see that these patients are slower selectively in the disability-related sentences. So even though these patients are ignoring their paralysis, they are slowed down. It seems to take processing space in their head by this meaning. The meaning exists, therefore, somewhere there, but it's not part of consciousness. Okay, so even when at an emotional level, at this meaning level, the disability is recognized somehow, explicit conscious beliefs about themselves are not updated. Nobody was cured after this task. So why not? What prevents this? But we haven't still answered it. I've done all this work. We haven't got an inch closer to that question. Why not? What prevents such updating? And I'm maintaining that neuroscientific focus. But I will remind us that, again, bring back to the same point. The analysts would say, well, it's a defense. And these people will say, well, it's damage. Maybe it has, we have to make this damage more sophisticated to account for your new findings, Dr. Fodobulu, but it's still damage. Yeah? Okay. So, taking inspiration, as you will see in a minute, from Mark and other people in the field, we first ask the question, are really, is really this dichotomy, deficit versus defense, is it really incompatible, theoretically? So contrary to these old neuropsychological and neuroscientific models, this computational neuroscience models of the brain that are benign to explain don't just talk about these inferences in the motor and sensory domain, even though they themselves started there. They tell us that all our mental life is based on this antagonism between who I was and who I need to learn to be constantly, yeah, my predictions and my um, updates. And this is also hierarchically organized in the brain, so that some, some of these up- updates are more important than other updates. And that's how they represent it. At, it's the summation of all these levels that will allow consciousness to fall. We'll, we'll come back to this. But these ideas are not far from Freud. In fact, I would say, as I've been trying to say from the beginning, these ideas are central to Freud. So this is why I had this obvious slides before. But look at it, if you, if you will, with me again after having reviewed all this. The existence of unconscious mental processes. Have I been talking about anything else? The mind has distinct parts with own operational principles and goals. The importance of conflict and ambivalence in mental life derives from some differences between these parts as well as from different drives. I haven't really um, covered drives, but we saw these different parts. We see the hierarchy. These are all very central to Freudian ideas. And this is where um, Marx's influential turn within psychoanalysis to actually open the door to neuroscience and allow such dialogue is very useful. And because people like me are therapists but not analysts, and because my main profession is not in analysis, I almost feel guilty calling myself a neuropsychoanalyst. But what I do is mainly neuroscience, and I I know that. <laughs> That's what I do. I do mainly neuroscience. But I continue, and I refuse to let go, of taking inspirations from psychodynamic theory. So that's why I call this psychodynamic neuroscience. 
So this is what Mark had to say about, as he said, confabulation, the first syndrome I studied, but one could easily apply it to nanosognosia as well. Inherent in the psychoanalytic way of looking at abnormalities of the ego is the idea that deeper, implicit features of the mind, invisible under normal circumstances, are revealed and sometimes positively released by deficit affective its cognitive um, surface. So, in other terms, just because you have a deficit here doesn't mean that's the end of it. Yes, you have a deficit here, but something then gets released, right? So maybe you can have a deficit that then allows you to see something about what we call the unconscious, the id unconsciousness. And this is somebody who is not a psychoanalyst or a neuropsychoanalyst and says, what one is really seeing is this patient is an amplified version of Freudian defense mechanisms. Quote, Inflamante delicto, he's very um, uh, flamboyant, Ramachandran, mechanisms of precisely the same sort that we all use in our daily lives. However, since the defenses are grotesquely exaggerated, studying them might give us for the first time experimental handle on defense mechanisms. And this is exactly what we're trying to get to. So let's go back to anosognosia and see what this big picture view means for the symptom and then for our theoretical inferences. So, as I said, these neuroscientists are telling us that these circle of exterception, proprioception, interception, i.e. all these circles of updating don't just refer to the motor system. They refer to pretty much all the bodies that Mark mentioned and various other things, and they all inform different aspects of what we call the self. What we've also understood is that from the perspective of the patient, their subjective experience, there's nothing wrong with the body. And we all know to respect that, right? So could we understand as a wishful pleasure-based first-person perspective? They cannot handle the loss. That's the psychodynamic idea. But if that's the case, and if we want, because when you're studying, that's the best thing to do, if we want to mess a little bit with this subjectivity without challenging it, how can we transcend it in this sense? Can we teach patients objective reality about their own body, the self? And I come back to you, which you emphasize very nicely that point, how we can't. She beautifully told us why. But let me take you through and I'll come back to it. Um, so we can try psychotherapy with these patients. And in fact, many people have, and I think everybody should. But as you all know, for many uh, reasons, it can be very impractical. And I don't mean just financial reasons. Sometimes they're just too ill for it. Um, but neuroscientists insist. They tell us the body is represented from the inside and the outside in different ways. They all form the same principle, but they're different bodies, as Mark also told us. So what if we tell them about this objective reality from the outside? What if we, not by just telling them, but by showing them their own self from the outside? And this is exactly what we did. I'm going to go through this quickly because I'm going to show you my first video. So these are... Oh, you're right, and because I haven't put that in. I was denying time, as usual, and um, thanks, Mark, because you would have missed that video and you don't want to miss that. Okay, so these uh, third-person perspectives of the body, i.e. showing the self from outside without telling them, just showing them their own self in a little video, had dramatic effect. 
Resorts, Catalong Shore Resorts. So I went to see, I don't have a picture of her um, here, the first patient, which is the woman I told you before with the um, students. And it's the first person I did it, and I um, had filmed her doing one of these standard neuropsychological assessments. And then I went a week later and said, she's been anosognosic in the ward for 40 days, and said to her, Listen, I have this video. We did it together. You kindly agreed. Do you want to see it with me? And then I did a lot of psychotherapeutic thing, make sure she's all right, a lot of containing. And she was, as I said, very intelligent. That helps. And said, yes, uh, let's do it together. I said, it will be upsetting. Yes, let's do it together. So showed her the video. And I, literally, I wasn't expecting this. I thought I was going to get reduction in my little scales and numbers and all that. And she says, um, you know what? I haven't been realistic. I was like, you haven't been realistic about what? Um, I don't think I can move my left side. You know, I literally almost fell from the chair. I've never seen that. These patients do fluctuate, but not like that. It was a full-on thinking person, fully engaging with what she saw. And, of course, the first thing that happened is she became very sad. Nothing changed in any of my other measures, but her depression scores were to the roof suddenly. And I measured that before and after the video. So she, you know, described it. And then we did some more emotional work, what it means, this realism. She says, well, I've lost control. I can't move my life, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, can you think of any way by which this knowledge is control? And she went, hmm. I'm like, what are you talking about, woman? You know, this is terrible. This woman is, is paralyzed. And then I, um, you know, eventually left the hospital, went back the next day. And as it frequently happens, I expected her to still be anosognosic. But maybe I was hoping she would remember a little chat. I come in. She looks at me and says, we had a great breakthrough yesterday, didn't we? I was again taken aback. I said, well, what do you mean? She says, well, you know, I can't move at all. I said, how do you feel? And she says, you know, not everybody recovers that quickly, but she said, it's very sad, but you know, you're right. I do have control. And that was very, very nice for me as well as for her. Um, so clearly I did something there, but I also think it was violent. And I don't think you can do that to every patient, no matter how much I try to, to contextualize it. But remember, I do know her for a long, long time. I don't always. Sometimes these patients come in for two days and their own clinician, proper clinician, won't know them for very long. So there's some limitations of what you can do with videos. But before we go there, let me show you this. This is the same thing with mirrors, not with videos, with mirrors. And these are the other patients. Remember, they also have anosognosia, but they are denying ownership of the arm. So please see this video, and then we can talk about how the mirror changed completely how you perceive your body. Let's hope this works. Now have a look here, please. Whose hand is this one? It's your husband's hand. Okay, does it look like your husband's hand? Yes. Okay, and whose hand is this one? It's mine. Okay. Can you see your arms? Huh? How many arms do you have? Okay, just tell me. This is which arm? And this one? Whose arm is this one? This is your left arm. Well done. Can you see it in the mirror? Excellent. I'm going to take the mirror down and I want you to concentrate. Okay? Whose arm is this one? And this one? Within seconds, no surprise. Do you see your granddaughter's hand anywhere? Yeah. Where is it? 
do. Is that your hand or your granddaughter? So I'm pointing here. Now I want you to look here, where my pen is. Here. Your perspective? Here. Whose hand is this one? This is your hand and, and my hand. Okay. Where is your granddaughter's hand? Sleeping here. You don't want her to sleep here. But this arm. Okay, one more time I'm going to do it. Yeah? Whose hand is this one? Ashi. Ashi. Okay, let's look in the mirror. Uh, it's your hand. It's your hand. It's your hand. And my hand pointing and doing all the bizarre things. Uh-huh. Your own left hand. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, let's make sure. So, clearly, the mirror does something strong. It's not easy to change people's consciousness over their body from a second to another, but it doesn't do anything that strong that it stays permanent, right? And what we're seeing is literally in front of our eyes, I think, that they're not surprised from these moment-to-moment changes about the body. It's almost as though they're two bodies, right? And we can call that in science a dissociation between the felt body and the seen body. The, the body as they feel it from the inside and the body as they see it in the mirror. And they're not talking to each other. Um, and this is, in fact, an old quote of a patient with this pathology saying exactly this. But my eyes and my feelings don't agree, and I must believe my feelings. I know they look like mine, but I can feel they're not, and I can't believe my eyes. And there's a lot of things that I've said already that give us hints to this, but let us go through it because there are various other elements we can add to it that are psychodynamic elements. So this reminds us a little bit of how children have to learn to recognize the felt body out there. And developmental psychologists, Lacan, certain other important scholars, tell us that the mirror um, is an important physical instance of that recognition. It's something, of course, we know that happens by parents, but the mirror, the actual physical mirror, is an important instance in developmental um, life um, whereby the child is able to realize that the, 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 the person I am here and the person I see there are actually one thing and they're based here, not there. That is an important step in development. Um, but these patients seem to struggle to learn this. Even when they recognize the body as another in the mirror, they can't link it back to the felt body. Um, and this is where I think psychoanalysis is at its best. So what psychoanalysis adds, in general terms, I'm refusing to have a, a battle over the particular model, um, is that the self is constituted through not just this physical mirrors, not just any socialization, but an emotional socialization. It's constituted through emotional engagements with others. It also adds that these, um, that we system, that togetherness has to be frustrated. So you all particularly here know about 
Freud's view of this, Klein's view of this, and of course Winnicott's view that the mother and the baby are a system. And so that we never forget the French, they had very similar um, theories, for example, around the skin and the skin neck. The skin being an interface that belongs for a while both to the child, the felt body, and the other body out there, and this being a system. So maybe to revert to Freudian terms, there's a first-person pleasure perspective that is emotionally met by particular others in the world. This, in neuroscience, is called an affective second-person perspective. So it's not a first, the felt body. It's not a third, the seen body. It's the we body. It's the together body. And as I said, for psychoanalysis, whichever model, this needs to be progressively frustrated. You can't just be stuck to your, to your parents forever. Um, I won't go into details for the interest of, of time. So returning to these patients it seems that they might be refusing exactly this separation, this frustration. They may be refusing to see, um, sorry, to see, to see, to see, the, the mind, their own perspective, that is reality, has to be reconciled. The first and the third cannot just be two different things. They, the felt body, the expected body to be able is actually the same body they see in the mirror, which is represents the third-person reality. Yeah. So let me show you um, again another patient telling me, I think, exactly that. We okay? Mark, what time? This is the patient you saw before, and this is actually before we ever do the mirror. This is the very few first time... Um, I think I've seen it four or five times at this point. Let's see. I'm just going to lift this arm here. Can you see this arm? Mm. This one. Whose arm is this one? Asha. Who is Asha? Mine. Gonna know daughter. And why is her hand here? She's coming. She's here. I don't know how to go mother take her home. She sleeps here. You've asked her mother yeah. to take her home. I said, go home. I said, go home. home. But she's not leaving, is she? No, no, no. Does it bother you that she's yeah. here? Yes, very, very bothering Can I ask you something? Yeah. In your mind, does your left hand move? In your mind, can you move your left hand? Every night, every night, Every night you take it out? Yeah. The left hand? Yeah. Okay. You don't know where it is? No. It's somewhere here, you think? Yeah? Yeah, I think so. But you can't find it, you told me before. That's fine. You can't help me. I will try to help you, I promised. Please yeah? look that she's trying to touch me. This is my hand, but I will try to help you across time to find your left hand. Is that okay? I'm trying okay. to separate. It's not going to be easy, though. It's going to take a little bit of time. Yeah. Okay? Good. You'll be patient. Gently, and, and tell me. But I reach back. In reality, does your left hand and separate? Move? In reality, not in your yeah. mind. Yeah. Does it move your own left arm? Okay. Is it unpleasant what I'm asking you? Thank you. Thank you very much. You don't want me to ask you this. No. That's okay.
I can't quite convince the um, empiricists about this. I can't convince my colleagues that this woman doesn't want me to unite the mind body and the seen body. This is a technique that uh, Mark taught me to to ask these patients. Um, but I, you know, they, they won't be convinced. But I'm convinced. <laughs> I'm happy with this. This woman is telling me she doesn't want me to ask her this. She doesn't want me to integrate this. Um, in her mind, as you see, the hand is is intact. But it's, it's lost and it's somewhere in space that all, uh, matters. Um, and I can help her find it and she tries to then touch my hand. Uh, I will say in a minute to try to establish that relationship. We will find it, have it together, she says, in a wee space, I add. Uh, but I should not ask her about this reality. Yeah. So somehow we will find it, but please don't ask me about reality. Um, and I won't have time for this video, but also, some people have said that the delusion itself, being the granddaughter and the other patient being the husband, is also a kind of weakness. Of course, you can say it's a projection, and it is. I'm not saying it isn't. But what I mean is, if your husband or your granddaughter are paralyzed, and this is exactly what this video says, the patient actually tells me that, it's better than if you're paralyzed alone. This is as simple as um, that, the point I'm trying to make. Also, Mark and his wife... Um, have um, addressed themes of loss into proper psychotherapy, uh, psychodynamic psychotherapy with such patients. And they found that after such um, general discussions about loss, there was insight, sudden uh, fluctuations of insight and appearance of some uh, knowledge about one's disability. So doing what we do, we said, how can you do that experimentally? Is that true? Can we prove it? Is it really that dynamic? Does awareness, despite that these papers can be 40 days in the hospital, can it really be as dynamic? So what we did, to cut a long story short, is we gave the task that I told you about before, the hailing task, without all the meanings. So it's very simple. You have to do a difficult inhibition task. This has an easy condition and then has the difficult inhibition condition. And in the difficult inhibition condition, we gave them bad feedback. In the good condition, we gave them good feedback. It's easy to do. And not very traumatic because everybody does good at the easy bit and bad in the, in the, in the difficult bit. But they didn't know this. So we made it quite realistic. And then we measured their awareness before and after. And this is what we find. This is looking at change in awareness from before to after. These are the darker, the target patients and these are the controls. So what you see is that following not positive, but negative feedback, i.e. when somebody else tells you you're doing badly in something else, you suddenly become more aware of your own body being paralyzed. Yeah. Again, we didn't treat them with this, but we found that dynamically you see a change towards that direction. So um, we've had mentioning of that, of losses today as well. So sometimes one loss can open the door to the acknowledgement of many other losses, and we know that in various ways in psychoanalysis. So we can say, to start bringing things together, that what is damaged in the brain is not just the ability to correct these motor predictions that we all need in everyday life, and clearly these patients don't have, but also the ability to correct wishful predictions to, in this particular case, tolerate or mentalize the loss of the other, separateness, individual nation, etc. So are we done? According to view, maybe we're done. We've, we've explained it from both... Um, compatibly from both scientific and psychodynamic views. But I think 
it should have been in your mind in the, in the last five minutes, uh, including the video. There's something missing in what I'm saying. There's one gap in the argument that I've hoped you picked it up. In this individuation learning, there's got to be some building blocks. In my mirrors, in my videos, there's something missing. And I've said it, but I haven't made it clear. So when these patients are, as we said, separating the felt body from the seen body, like the babies do, what is it that the mothers actually do? The mothers are not like the therapist just telling us what's the right thing to do. Yes, they progressively introduce separation, prohibition, but progressively and gently what they first, and when I say mothers, I, I mean any caregiver, what they first and foremost do is first establish the bond and then introduce the breaks. If that's the case, can, how can I test this with these patients? You know, I can't be literally their mother. I can't be, for practical reasons, the therapist. Is there, if you like, a bottom-up way of doing it? Is there a body way in, which is what I'm committed to. Forget about all the higher order stuff and five years and analysis. Not that there's nothing wrong with that, but you can't do that in an acute stroke ward. You don't have the time. If you cure the patient, you have to cure them within the first 20 days. Otherwise, all research shows they're going to be benefiting in less. They've lost the critical window of recovery following stroke. They're going to have worse prognosis. So you have very little time and you need to build report at the body level. One thing when we look at science that allows you to do that, allows you to build this we space, is actually affective touch. It turns out that our body and our skin has a specialized system for picking up affective touch. Even at the skin, the skin has specialized receptors and then fibers that take the information up to specialized area in the brain to process gentle, slow touch like this between parents and baby, and do not respond to fast touch, to pressure, etc. A specialized system that works quite um, differently than the usual faster um, signals that detect, for example, that this is a table and not um, a wood, glass, whatever. Yeah. So um, this information follows a different path from periphery to the brain than this kind of information. And if that's true, could these kind of neurological uh, disorders be treated by this. And so we did one of our classical studies where we had all these groups and we just looked at if you stroke them, just stroke them, no talking, close their eyes, as neutral environment as possible in these positive, affective ways like a mother would do versus a more neutral way like a doctor would do, um, are you likely to see a change in these patients' awareness, which you haven't told them anything about. And this is exactly what my colleague, Shahbat Bisharati, has found. So when you look at these patients, and these are patients with, um, we're looking at dishonorship here. So this is how much you believe the body is yours, like the patient you just saw. So before the touch, this is quite high. So they don't believe the body is there in relationship to uh, controls. But after the touch, it drops dramatically. All we did is touch them in a pleasurable way. We measured whether they find it a pleasurable way, and they do. And then we simply ask them, can you move, da 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 in the same scales? Yes, I can. Simple as that. If we have time, I'll show you the video of what exactly the patient says. They start working out uh, whether they can move and whether it's their own body. So this is um, one patient, a quote from one patient after this stimulation. Uh, we have This is after they recovered, and they describe back what they remember. I woke up, and I called this arm a beast. It was not my arm. I did not want it. It was some foreign fellow. 
But then you touched it, and I caressed it, as you said, because we also teach them to do it themselves. And I decided to love it again. I said, come, I accept you. I welcome you back. We have been together, have been through a lot together. Yeah? This is the patient. We didn't put in these words in them. And because we have the data, I am even able to put this quote in the scientific paper, so I'm delighted. Um, and so maybe this kind of um, embodied relationship with the other, as manifested here by the affective touch, is particularly relevant to the constitution of the body as mine, is what we are arguing. So... As we said, it seems that these patients have lost their ability to update their own motor awareness. They confuse motor predictions for actions. It seems that their embodied interactions such as affective touch and explicit communication, sharing of sadness, are both able to reintegrate the first and the third person experience of the self and the world. And just to remind you some other terms, David's divided versus integrated states. So are these positive and negative emotions in the brain? Should we be looking for another location other than the other ways that they understand their, their body? Higher in the hierarchy, perhaps? That would be one explanation. And so let's go back to where we started, these kind of models. So what they tell us is really important. Apart from this prediction that we have and these prediction errors and all these unconscious work we do to predict the world and ultimately come up with a solution that appears in our consciousness, are actually modulated by something. And it turns out the neuroscientists believe that what they're modulated is what Freud called drives. They're not the same drives, as we've heard today, and Mark explained that, but it's the mechanisms in the brain, the processes that uh, we could legitimately, I think, call drives. And there are different processes, as Mark highlighted, for um, for example, the attachment drive versus a more general object-less uh, seeking system. And that latter one is, is dealing with these motor uh, corrections and motor predictions. Whereas if you put things in a different context, and that's what the neuroscientists say, an emotional and social context, you have a different system modulating that, the famous oxytocin system. So under these different motivational imperatives, under the influence of different drives, it's certain of these updating mechanisms are more relevant than others. So the, not only the unconscious influences the conscious, but the unconscious picks up the right conscious, the right, excuse me, context. For example, it says, hey, your mother is here. You're safe. Relax. Look around you. Learn. Update. Or way, 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 way. Be defensive. There's nobody here to take care of you. That guy's not to be trusted. Shut down. Stick to your ground. Follow the, what I call the stubbornness principle. Yeah? So this is tracked unconsciously and then influences awareness in a different way. So finally, let's return to bring it all together. So what has Freud told her? What was, um, sorry, what was the, the, the approach we followed to get to what Freud told us? What was the role of unconsciousness in Freud in the model of the mind? Similarly, in contemporary neuroscience, we've identified a disorder that was potentially relevant. And then this is what we concluded from the point of view of both. Most of our mental life is unconscious. It's uniquely modulated by our drives and then derivatives. And it's capable of dynamically influences conscious operations, including 
our very own self-awareness. Thank you. Thank you very much, Katerina. As you can see, uh, I've been a very bad chair and allowed Katerina to talk for way too long, but I'm sure you'll agree it was worth it. So now we have 15 minutes for questions. We only have one mic by the look of it. Okay. Thank you very much. I was very intrigued, but I didn't ex- understand why the old lady could recognize her arm in the mirror and not in reality. Could you please explain that again? Can you say the very beginning of your sentence? Because I'm afraid I didn't hear. Uh, I didn't understand why the old lady could recognize her own arm in the mirror, but not in bed, so to speak. But not in... in yeah, yeah, when it was there. Well, there are different... Uh, as you saw throughout my talk, I used different fields and different levels of explanation to, to trying to get to this issue. So I'll try to do the same justice to your question. So because all of us are constantly coding the way we feel inside our body differently with the body we see in the mirror. And you may all be absolutely beautiful, but every morning my mirror surprises me. I look at it and I go, really? That's the way I look? Now, I have quite a lot of experience of looking at the mirror. It's not that I avoid him. Some people do. But um, we, we, we have psychological, and that's known in many fields, um, uh, schemata, representations, unconscious inferences of these uh, two bodies separately stored in the mind as well as in the brain, yeah? And it takes quite a lot of work, some of it unconscious, some of it conscious, depending on the context, to bring them together, to integrate them. Some of it is automatic. For example, when you see yourself in the mirror, we, we all get a little bit confused, but we mo- most of us manage to do the left-right um, reversal it entails. And you saw that these patients were doing that. She was saying at the end, left, left, left. She was already fed up with me asking her because I, was, I wanted to make sure she was doing it right. This automatic thing she can do, but actually transpose herself out to realize that the self that's talking to you now, whatever I feel inside me, might not be the self that's looking back at me now talking and possibly judging me. And be- tolerate this, that I have an intention and you have your own and somehow we need to meet. The same applies to our own self. I also have to look back at myself from my own eyes, as it were. That's a very difficult human ability. It's quite a lot of work to arrive there. And in development, that gets built. These patients, it's damaged. And the usefulness, the beauty of it, is that we can use them as models of what happens to build these ability. So by revealing all this that I tried to show, we see how we struggle to build it. Yeah? And there are many things I can say. It's an endless topic. But you know when I talk about individuation and separation, the first separation is the separation with the self. I mean, Lacan explains that rather well. Seeing yourself out there is, you know, it's pretty threatening. You actually where inside you there was another that you didn't know about, right? And that actually, to be fair, isn't Lacan's idea. It's a long, uh, much older philosophical idea. And pretty much everybody else agrees with it. Oh, hi, hi. Yeah, I must say I found your whole lecture quite disturbing because oh, I don't really see what neuroscience is trying to prove. I mean, if, if you lose ability to move your body, then there's going to be an emotional response to that. Anyone would feel that. 
And I can't say, it, I found it quite distressing seeing them patients looking quite distressed. And I think basically they've been used as guinea pigs, which I, I, in psychoanalysis you're trying to uh, help people who have suffered traumas, obviously that's led them to not being able to function well or as well as they can or at all. And I found that quite disturbing. If that was my grandma or mum or somebody, I would be thinking about um, taking some legal action, <laughs> in fact, because I found it really, really disturbing, the whole thing. And I, I don't really know what you're trying to actually prove. But um, to me, it doesn't really prove nothing, except neuroscience getting quite excited about using people as guinea pigs that happen to be, unfortunately, um, disabled by a disease or a trauma that's happened to them. And I, 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 it did go on thought, you know, the time did go and there was not time to speak, but I felt I just had to say that because I, I did find it so disturbing, I had to say something about it before I actually left. Um, so I understand the feeling. Intellectually I disagree and I'm about to say uh, why, but I want to first emphasise that emotionally I understand you. And I understand... Yes, maybe that's one reason, but I would like to reply. So... Let, her, let Katerina respond to your concern. So I would have liked us first, if possible, not just me, but I certainly feel it, to stay a little bit with what you just said, that it is very disturbing. And what happened to them is very disturbing. And they are experiencing something that it's cruel, it's violent, it's awful. And it's true that that when anybody is trying to do anything with them, including science or therapy, these feelings are about to emerge. And particularly when you're trying to do science and you're not there, strictly speaking, to treat them, there's even something morally questionable there. But intellectually, the reason I, I mean, there are many reasons, but one reason I think stands out today, why I disagree and why I do the work that I do, and I don't think it's because I'm a neuroscientist, um, is that... For me, the question is what I said, alluded to at a point. Why don't we just let them be? Why is it so important that we bring them to what we call a reality, that being scientific or objective or socially shared? Why can't we not let them, in this particular case, just use this defense? Why do I so keen to treat it and, and break it down and make them aware? Why am I treating my reality the third person reality, the is your arm moving in reality? Why am I doing it? Is it only because I, like many of us, cannot tolerate this negative emotions and I want to sort of get rid of it? And maybe some of it is true. But I think the reason we do it, and that's a, a very, I think, um, deep and interesting and complex question that maybe we can't do judge, judgment here, but we can start to approximate it, is that as I told that patient, Actually, that kind of knowledge that isn't so defensive and in denial of reality ultimately is more adaptive for her, is ultimately what will get her out of this situation. It won't cure her disability, and it won't make me win the novel. That isn't what's uh, driving us here. It is the deep intellectual and emotional belief that a manic, narcissistic way of being isn't the answer. Yes. 
Yes, I agree that she has other problems, but you know, literally. No, no, wait, 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 wait. We've got so little time. Please, uh, uh, please, please, please. We we need other people to be able to ask questions too. Okay. So. Uh, Ivan's just gone with the mic after the uh, colleague. <laughs> so I'll, I'll pass the mic to the next question here. Uh, thank you, thank you for this. Uh, also, uh, knowing that uh, my mother is suffering with uh, something of similar kind. I'm actually very grateful for such kind of research because I can see how much we as sons actually do suffer from difficulties and how much actually some insight is very, very helpful, even though, as in analysis as well, sometimes it, uh, you know, dealing with reality is hard, but it is actually more adaptive. Now, my actual question is different. Uh, when you refer to these modulators, and I believe you referred to oxytocin, um, and as a result of stroke, uh, stroking the hand in a sort of yeah, particular way, do I understand more or less correctly that when you mention drives, you are referring to these uh, seven systems mentioned by Mark uh, earlier, um, or is there some sort of other research? Because so far, as, as far as I know, it's mainly Jak Pankset who is actually uh, driving this, but is it also being pursued uh, more here? Yeah, it's a very interesting question, actually, which generally I think today we didn't do full justice to it because we're talking about the unconscious, a quite different thing. But, um, yes, there is uh, Jan Panks' view, which, as you know, divides certain of these systems into a number of primary ones and then traces secondary and third uh, influences. There are also other similar taxonomies by other people um, that are close but not exactly the same as Jan's. And thirdly, there is a more computational... Um, view of these systems that say that they're not strictly separated in that almost localizational way where this drive starts here and this drive starts here and it travels there. But in addition to this traveling, there is um, what I tried to say more a sort of economic, if you like, a quantitative element. Uh, so they combine and integrate in a sort of complex way and it's that um, um, aggregation of the different systems that could be better correlated with certain emotional um, or certain drive uh, categories. However, the, as far as I'm concerned, what I believe is that, I, I don't know, I haven't decided, the, the, the data is just not there yet. So it wasn't only Freud that's struggling, neuroscience is struggling to define that. Thank you. Um, in The Unconscious, in the paper of 1915, uh, Freud refers to a phenomenon we encounter frequently with schizophrenic patients uh, who that resembles, uh, in my mind, what we just saw. He refers to Victor Tausk's patient with the eye twister. And there, they, you know, schizophrenic patients uh, uh, in, in, in clinic complain that body parts do not belong to them or their, even their body itself does not belong to them. And Freud's explanation in the paper is that, uh, for example, with Victor Tausk's patient, that uh, as, as, as word representations, uh, the, the eyes being a body organ but also being a word uh, are treated like things. Sorry, word, uh, um, no, things are treated like words. 
Does this somehow relate to what you what you told us? Do you see it in this perspective? Uh, when you started the question, I was about to give another answer, which I'm going to start with <laughs> and recollect my thoughts. But um, there are a lot of similarities uh, between this right hemisphere patients and more severe psychotic states. So you could argue that they display either discard from reality some psychotic elements, and therefore all these Freudian explanations will have some relevance. We must remember that they're not really in the sense that it's only a bit of the mechanism that is the same. And frequently in neurology, and in a way that's the beauty of it, things are far more isolated. So their islands of unreality are very specific, and they have to do with these very specific brain areas that affect very specific parts of the body. If you have a discussion with them, for example, about the other side of the body, or work, or football, or life, or perhaps they're totally clear and structured, and therefore... We have to um, limit. In terms of things and word presentation, I don't remember. Years ago I thought of it, but it's a concept that I haven't for a long time um, embraced. And in fact, I'm still I'm interested because I'm struggling a little bit with think presentations and various other ideas we have about schemata and pictorial representations in neuroscience. So if you give me five, six years, I'll get back to you. The, I mean, early, quite earlier on in your presentation when you were um, showing your results of these um, tests where you were giving people a, a phrase to complete and uh, the, the hurdle of, com- of, of completing it wrongly. And you measured patients with this um, body uh, image disturbance um, as, as, as having a harder time lying a harder time answering wrong, um, doesn't that, in a way, it indicates that there is, that, that at some point there is a defeating mechanism going on underneath subconsciously that is taxing. So even if a person may look very happy to have their granddaughter's arm, something underneath it, 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 it's, it, it's, it's causing them problems even if it's not, they're not showing it. Yes, yeah. this is exactly why we designed the experiment. And just to emphasize, they weren't slow on everything. They were only slow when it refers to disability-related sentences. Right, right, exactly. And they did more errors. So that reinforces your point that something in them is taking this mental space. The beauty of it for me, I mean, it's not a surprise in a way, right? Because I believe, obviously, in unconscious thinking. But what is also um, fascinating um, is that it... it it's not reflective. I mean, it might sound a bit obvious to you, but um, and unconscious uh, discussions always have adjectives before them, emotional, smart, dumb. But the most interesting thing is that they can't think about it. Whatever it is in their mind, from the outside, I am giving them these sentences, meaning something in the brain reads, literally, this meaning, does something that takes up processing space, and yet, that meaning cannot be thought by the patient. Isn't that amazing? And that is important for my cognitive colleagues because that whole debate, which I sort of made a joke about, um, as to where the unconscious is smart or dumb, that's what it comes down to it. For many years, people said, you know, yes, of course the unconscious does all sorts of things, but it cannot really do meaning. But it does, and it does this kind of meaning, not just... Uh, you know, uh, picking up uh, schemata, uh, as in, you know, square versus circle. It does personal meaning in a particular way. 
Yeah, and you know, sorry, for those of you philosophically minded, I mean, Sartre would have hated this data. So it pleases me greatly. Hi, I was just going to say thank you very much for your um, work because I'm an attachment-based psychotherapist, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, but I also teach infant observation. And I think the last couple of slides, I don't know if we can have access to your slides, this, the idea about you start off as a baby with the pleasure, mm-hmm. the, the approach and the avoid towards it on different themes, that's all another thing. But then the whole idea of coming alive or bits of you coming alive because you are seen... Mm-hmm. But that's not enough. But before you, you, you have to be seen before you become a we. And you know the whole understanding about other and difference and what that means, and all the meaning, the personal meaning that we actually make to it, was just very. It was just very helpful to see that way. And the other thing that I think is really interesting is that one of the ways that you show that these people come to accept some of the problems that they are actually the reality is through what we would term as regulation, a sort of a, an emotional and a social and an engagement regulation. And I guess some patients will do better than others depending on their previous attachment histories. So those that are more secure, like that woman probably that you talked about, where she could see that she did have control and she was able to go through that whole process of mourning quite quickly, um, is a good example, possibly. I mean, I don't know, because I don't know if any research has been done in that area, versus some other patients who will struggle because they haven't had a good enough sort of, you know, early experience of being with another mm-hmm. and becoming a we. So I just, I just really appreciate that. Um, just wanted to say that I am also um, uh, informally in training a psychotherapist, and I'm also an attachment researcher. So all this that we discussed today really resonates with me in many ways. But I didn't have time to it. We do loads of meetings here in London on these fields and internationally. Please, please do come. Uh, these are very, the kind of questions you're asking are very relevant and kind of discussions we have all the time. And I did very sort of sneaky um, comment there about I refuse to, to battle between models. And aside from hating conflict for the sake of conflict, I also don't like it because I think these models have far more similarities than people willing to admit. So I don't find attachment quite antagonistic to Freudian thinking, for example. Really? Um, yeah, and, and we... we um, we do do works with attachment. We do find, depending on people's different patterns, all this varies. And the only little hint I made at the end, which makes what you say uh, really central, is that indeed this oxytocin system is the attachment system, right? So all I'm saying is that we have this pleasure ego that is very basic. We have a we system. Both scientists and uh, therapists spend a lot of time arguing what's primary. It, yes. they, well, the philosophical response is that you can't have the one one the other. If you actually pull the argument at the end, they have to coexist from, from day one. But that doesn't matter. It's not a central thing. It, the kind of primacy we're talking about is seconds, hours, you know, the rest of life. <laughs> you have both of them. And, and they're very important. They do follow a trajectory in different contexts. And it kind of adds up. You know, you, in order for you to whether you want to talk of an undifferentiated state, as certain analysts talk about, or a we state, as certain other analysts talk about it. You have to have that first before you separate. It's all the infant developmental aspects. Yeah, the different, the different trajectories, but actually the important story is the same. That's what I'm trying to say. So it is half past five, and I need to draw things to a close. Um, I want to, before thanking Katerina, to thank uh, Ivan and Amelia for a wonderful conference. It was really an, an unusually rich sort of um, banquet of ideas and, and uh, um, phenomena. 
Um, the, the, this last presentation, uh, I, I think it was just bloody marvelous, but I want to comment on the, the, um, the distressing part of the discussion. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's very difficult to try to bring um, into the psychoanalytical and psychotherapeutic world the conventions and the disorders and the, you know, the things which people like Katerina and I are very familiar with. We, we, we work in those wards all the time with these patients all the time, and we forget how shocking and how distressing it is, which is one of the ways that one copes also with it. Um, but I want to, in case you feel uh, badly about uh, what, what happened here today, I want to reassure you that every time that people like Katerina and I talk, uh, bring psychoanalytical uh, concepts and data into our neuroscientific meetings, we're hated just as much. <laughs> so, thank you, Katerina.